<laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet a spooky episode of The Cup Screened Plays. For this festive fall season, the team here is going into a 1996 adaptation of Arthur Miller's The Crucible, directed by Nicholas Heitner, starring Daniel Day-Lewis as John Proctor, a very young Winona Ryder as Abigail Williams, the late great Paul Schofield as Judge Thomas Danforth, and Academy Award-nominated Joan Allen as Elizabeth Proctor, amongst a whole other cast of who's who of great character actors in this piece. Even a cast member from Amadeus pops up in this film uh, as well. We'll see if Ryan has feelings about him in this one, just like he did the last time. I, I will refrain from commenting on him in this one because of what I learned about him last time. Fair enough. And if you're wondering who we're talking about, go check out our episode on Amadeus. He's fair. Well, there we go. Principal. It's fine. There you go. There you go. We spoiled it, Ryan. I'm trying to spoil another episode. <laughs> oh, right. Sorry. I'm bad at marketing ourselves. <laughs> All right. But joining me on this witch hunt, and I, I will say, historically speaking, no witches were burned in Salem. They were all hanged. So clarifying that historical fact. But joining me on this frenzied witch hunt, we have a wonderful panel, including a returning guest, the wonderful Sarah Heim. Hello, goody Sarah. Hello. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> or no, so I, I guess we goody Heim. I, I guess so. Goody Heim, yes. yeah. Goody Heim. <laughs> I might have to start going by that. I oh my God. I was going to say... Mac, please don't refer to us as Goody Heim and Goody Robinson this entire panel. But oh, Jill, I think not, I will now, Jill. Jill, you're not married. You can't be Goody Robinson. Oh, Maybe that's true. It's short for oh, good wife. Yeah. Oh, see, look at this. Ryan coming in with the intellectualness here. So, Ryan, what would you Fair. be then if it's not Goody? Well, it's, Sarah can be Goody. You're married. That's so, true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah I'll just know. be... I'll just be the lusty, you know, yeah. whore who just leads us all into the woods and then manipulates all the men. There you go. There you go. There you go. All right. All right. Back to you, though, Sarah. How are you? What's going on with you? What's in your cup today? So in my cup, I have an herbal tea. Mm -hmm. The herbs reminded me of the contents of the cauldron at the beginning mm. of the the, the movie, as you can tell, I'm yes. a little congested. So yeah. I was trying to combat that, but you'll notice that my mug has an S on it. And some would say that was an S for Sarah, but for me, it's an S for Salem. Mm. <gasps> Very good. Well done. Is, is there a frog in that tea? I wonder. I hope not. <laughs> like, no, there's a frog in my throat. Yeah. Yes. yeah. There you go. <laughs> Wonderful. And joining us, it is not Goody Robinson. It is just the wonderful Jillian Robinson. Hello, Jill. Hello. Hello. I'm sorry. I feel like we missed an opportunity, like our screened plays. This is a screened play. Because <laughs> it's spooky. <laughs> is it spooky? No, we'll get into that about this film. Did they? There are the literal children that? screaming behind you for those watching oh, on that YouTube. Is, who can that see is that. true. There are screaming children. All right. I'll give you that one. It definitely has like some autumnal hues, which yeah. gets into my ensemble. Yes, what is your um, ensemble today, Jill? This is a new shirt I bought with my mom Ooh. while shopping for my wedding dress for my sister's wedding, which happened around recording. Um, but I thought it's it's quite autumnal. It's got like it's just paisley, but they kind of look like pumpkins. 
I love it. And there's like a little black silk tie at the back, which you can't see, but it's like orange and cream and Mm. black vibes. All colors. Yeah. I'm going for a little like no makeup, modest Puritan look, I guess. (laughs) I don't know, Joe. Um, Puritans want to show their shoulders. You need like a shawl or something there. (laughs) Sure, sure. This is, and then I have just kind of like, it's, a mug at my parents' place that kind of just looks like a bit period-esque. Earthy. I would say period-esque. Um, it's like an old-fashioned tankard. Yeah, and it's got caramel drizzle coffee Ooh. with pumpkin spice creamer in it. Very, Very nice. A nice. little autumnal potion going on. Oh, and then just some water. Look yep. at you, look at you. All right, and of course I have my co-artistic producer over there, Mr. Ryan Baragovich. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Mac at all. How are we all doing? We're good. Oh, we're all doing well. Ryan, what is your ensemble today? I see you're in a festive mood. <laughs> I, what is I in your am. Cup? I am. Well, I don't have pumpkin spice in my cup. I just have regular coffee, but it's in our the cup cup. Oh, yeah, very good. Show you. You're watching right now. And because there's no pumpkin in my coffee, I wore an orange shirt because we are going to try to get this out around Halloween. Maybe we'll succeed in that TBD. We, we may miss it by a week or so, but either way, it's still in that spooky season. Fall mm-hmm. weather, cold, creepy, misty, wet wetness. Even though the film didn't quite do that, we'll get into that. But yes, wonderful. And I am in my black and white attire, trying to get that Puritan Salem attire going there. They're all very black and white people, except for Renona Rodgers' character, who oftentimes is in browns and grays. So you know, she is not so one way or the other. Neither is John Proctor. John Proctor wears reds and other colors compared to the other people of the town who, as we can see, are in much more black and white style clothing. So subtle hint from the costumes answer that there are some people who live in the gray, some people who live in the black and the whites. Is this already your answer to <gasps> production or design element? Oh, no, it's, another, it's uh, digging I, at I mine. Have <laughs> I, have, I have another thought. But I am drinking my diet Canada Dry cranberry ginger ale. So we get kind of like that blood color there that like, you know, Winona Ryder smears on her face when she's creating some blood magic. Thematic. Yes. And then then also Paul Schofield's wonderful glass of wine that he pours himself ever so sinisterly in his big interrogation scene, which technically is act two of the play. So there we go. All right, but let's get into this piece because not not a lot of people talk about this as like a screened adaptation of a play. A lot of people forget that there is a filmed version of of the Christopher Hat, which stars quite a few big names who are still very much around today and performing. So let's give our first overall kind of general thoughts and impressions about this film. Would you recommend it to others? Sarah, I know you were very eager to talk about this piece. So like, have you done the film or, or the play before? Like, is this one of your faves? Like, is this a film you grew up watching? So I had never seen the film before. I've actually seen the play before. And the sort of story behind that is that when I first went to theater school, the senior students, of course, put the shows on throughout the year. Mm -hmm. And in my first year of theater school, the fourth years used to do the first show of the season. And Mm -hmm. the first show that season was The Crucible. And it was so good. Like, Mm -hmm. it's actually the things I've seen in my life, that production of The Crucible Mm -hmm. still stays with me. It was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I loved the play. Mm-hmm. And so I was very excited to be mm-hmm. asked to be on this panel to talk about it because it is a play that I love and that I've read and 
seen. So that's always fun to then be able to compare it to the film adaptation. And somehow I didn't realize that there was a film adaptation. I sort of just missed it. As you said, it seems like not everyone knows this. I'm one of those people. So I am, I do love this piece. And I think that influences a little bit of my impressions of the film. And I think my, if we're going into sort of our overall thoughts or our first kind of general impressions of the film as a whole, I sort of had lukewarm feelings about it. it there were some elements of it that I really liked. And then there were some elements of it that I didn't love. And I think that comes from really loving it as a play. Um, and some of the elements of it that I think really work well on stage that we lose a little bit in a film, a film adaptation. I know we're mm -hmm. going to talk about some of those things later on, so I won't mm -hmm. get into too much detail, but that was sort of my takeaway was mm -hmm. there was, it was just a medium, a medium response, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I will piggyback off you, Sarah, because I really have the same notes for this <laughs> question as well, where I'm like, it's a fine film adaptation, but it could have been excellent. The source material is so good. Mm. The Crucible is easily in my top five plays. I remember seeing this at Soul Pepper when they did it. And oh, Joseph Ziegler well, played um, was um, Reverend Paris in that one. Mm -hmm. And he just right away captured the energy of the show. And I forget who was our, our John Proctor. But his big, but it is my name, breaks, broke my heart. It truly broke my heart and made me like <laughs> actually shed a few tears of mm -hmm. just pure sadness. And the ups and downs of this play were so well captured in that production of every time you think you're going to get a win, it goes the other way. You're like, ah, oh, crap. Come on, Elizabeth. Just own up to it. Don't try and save your husband here. He's teed you up perfectly. Oh, so then when you get to the film, it lacked that frenzied energy. There was just something mm. about it that it didn't have that agency anymore. It felt too pedestrian and not enough frenzied drive. And there was way too much scenes in the sunlight. This show needed to be done in fog, mist, a lot more scenes done by candlelight and firelight. Like, really amp up the tension, the creepiness. Like, almost like, a rhyme. what's that literary term? In uh, Macbeth, when like after Duncan dies, and they're talking about the horses biting each other, the, the weather's turned pathetic uh, fallacy. Like pathetic that's fallacy. It. Yeah, that's it. Like basically, once that first opening sequence, and they start abusing or start calling out the women's names, there should be a change in the weather, and it should be just rainy and miserable and cold, and just like we see the, the descent of of the world around this town as they get further and further into the mud and the muck there. Like by the time we get to that great line when um, J uh, John Proctor has had Elizabeth taken away and he looks out into the night and says like, you know, we're going to go to hell for this. Like we're going to go rip this. Uh, 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 we're going to go fall upon the court. It should almost look like King Lear and the howl, howl, howl in, like, in, in the tempest storm where it's like we have hit the peak of misery here you know and then like but it just it just didn't have that it just lost the energy to it that i think you need to really amp up this play it's kind of like mm -hmm. mackers where you need to have really good pace at that play to sell it and mm -hmm. this play this film adaptation just didn't have that pace and energy that was needed to really capture that frenziedness that drives this town in, into madness basically so, I, so about, there were a few moments, like as Sarah says, there were a few moments that are really good, like the montage moments where we see the townspeople start turning on each other 
The execution montage was really good. There's, I'll get more to that montage in a bit. But like, there are a few key moments where I was like, okay, we're getting the pace, we're getting the energy, and then it'd be like, and let the air out. Like, <laughs> I got a, 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 that whole interrogation scene. That's all of Act Two was so slow. And I'm like, it needs to fly. Like, this needs to just escalate and go. And it was just no. And I mean, we'll get more into. I feel why that happens. Uh, and we'll get into that in a bit when we get more into the cast. I think it's a particular cast member who kind of kills it, <laughs> not in a good way there. But overall, though, I would highly recommend this film. It's got a good cast. Overall, it's a good, solid adaptation. It does capture the kind of the societal energy I, that, 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 that this plays all about of neighbor turning against neighbor, that type of paranoia. So I do think it has good elements there. I just think it could have been so much better if they had just done a few more tweaks here and there. I see Ryan making faces at me, though. Ryan, what are you thinking? So uh, before I even get into my answer, I I don't know. I'll go to bat for the daylight, I guess. I I disagree (laughs) about the necessity of pathetic fallacy because this is something that happens in broad daylight. Like this is kind of, yes, the town is going to hell in a Mm -hmm. handbasket but mm-hmm. it is treated like normal, something pedestrian that can happen and happen right. very easily. So if you treat it like it's an act of God, I don't know, I think that, I get it, it's a tried and true literary device, but to me that would feel ham-fisted, and I kind of like that it, there is a degree of normalcy mm-hmm. applied okay, to sure. the way that a lot of some fools, you, you can disagree, you can like prefer to yeah. be like spooky Halloween, I guess, more is... That's the whole place, spooky Halloween. <laughs> is it? I don't know. I, I kind of think this is a play about the fact that Joseph McCarthy was calling everybody a communist in the 1950s, True. and all of Arthur Miller's friends were needing to name names, and that's why he wrote it. And that was just a normal thing that wasn't cloaked in shadows and Halloween. It was government bureaucracy that was enacting this violence. It wasn't the devil himself. So... Yeah, I don't know. I disagree about that. In terms of just my general thoughts and impressions, I I like it. It's a fine movie. I think I'm kind of the opposite of what I guess Sarah and Mac are both saying here is that the things that I don't love about the movie are the same things that I don't necessarily love about the play. I have a bit of a mixed love-hate relationship with this play. I don't know if looking over the list of questions, if there's any reason why I'll get into a lot of the specifics. TBD, the night is young. Um, (laughs) But yeah, to me, this is, we'll get more into the adaptation specifics and later questions, but like this is a pretty straightforward film adaptation of this very famous play that a lot of people know. And it is really kind of just, if there isn't a community theater production of this happening near you, you can watch this and feel like you've encountered the crucible. Yes. And, <laughs> and like I say that as somebody who first encountered this play in a community theater production in my hometown, I wasn't in it. I just saw it. But yeah, like to me, this feels like a very high budget community theater film version of this. <laughs> and, and I don't mean that as a slight. I love community theater. And I do think that, yeah, like I have seen top, tier acting in community theater just like there's top tier acting in this film that we will talk about but it really is just a very i want to say like glossed up or gussied up but that feels incongruous with the muck and mire and the lack of showering that we will get into but yeah it just feels like a pretty standard version of this very well written but Mm -hmm. complicated play Mm -hmm. that yeah tbd if i feel like getting into my thoughts about that 
All right. All right. Jill, break the tie. Where are you going to fall? On the Ryan side or on the Sarah and Max side? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of taking like tidbits of what y'all have said already is kind of along my same train of thought. So I guess like just to open up with my what my experience with the piece has been. So in grade 11, I studied it. It was like the play option for my English teacher that mm-hmm. that year. So also Frankenstein and Mackers were the other literary pieces that I studied in that a course. Solid so that was like, yeah, and like a spooky all of, yeah, and all of them kind of like were speaking to each other because my brain does that. But so, so yeah, so I read it, it. Way thematically. Yeah. <laughs> so I read it. I Sarah, thank you for reminding me. I forgot that the fourth year before, because I was a year behind Sarah in theater school, I that totally slipped my mind that Theater Arendelle had done that. But so I unfortunately missed that production. Um, and then a really good friend of mine, Mauro, he went to University of Windsor, the BFA program there. They did it. And he was John Proctor in that show. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I had to miss that one as well. And I know National Theatre at Home is releasing their production of it at some yes. point on the streaming will, service, right? They should be. They're they looking forward to seeing that because this has been a piece that like I've read it, I've studied it. We also read it in the Playbook Club group yes. we did over the I think you were years. Elizabeth in that one. I think I was as well. Yeah. And it's one of those that like I've seen so many either the trailer of the pro shot for National Theater Live or photos from productions like I've just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I love like the muck and mire and the bloody and the dirt, like the liveness of that is still present, even though I've only seen it through media. And yeah, it, it's for this film, I think I'm I'm with Ryan in that like it was an enjoyable film to watch. I loved kind of analyzing the acting and the choices, and we'll get into that as further questions go along. But and because I have never seen the text lifted onto its feet in some shape or form, I enjoyed watching it because again we'll get into it with the adaptation. But there's always with this text, there's so many characters in this piece that it's a are big like. Cast. Some of them are very important, but then all of them are like semi-important. There's no like throwaway. So I had found in the past reading this text, I sometimes would get confused of keeping everything straight and kind of following the little micro channels of who allies with who. So it was really nice getting to see that. Definitely I would recommend it because like what Ryan is saying, I think it's a really good, again, lifting off the text on its feet and some really great choices made but yeah i think agreeing with sarah on the mediumness of the film is kind of where i'm at yeah i will say strafford did a solid production of it i think last season with one of our former guests tim campbell who is irene's partner he was john proctor in that and he was very good as well very cool and that was a solid production that was done at the avon that was very good too so it's, it, it's a show that has been done and trotted many a time. Ryan, are you more of a fan mm-hmm. of Death of a Salesman or The Crucible? I think my favorite Arthur Miller play is probably All My Sons, which we've done oh, an episode on. We did. Um, Sally Field. And, uh, and Bill Pullen. And yeah, I think I'll say, fine, I'll just say a very brief thing about my gri- my big gripe. And it's a gripe about a lot of Arthur Miller plays in particular. <laughs> and I think I even brought it up in the All My Sons episode, Appreciate despite you. that one being my favorite. Is... He tends to lose focus when he's writing Arthur Miller (laughs) that he, you know, his plays feel like they're very like well constructed and have this big, you know, thematic point or through line. And they often do to a point, but 
I think the Crucible is a good textbook example of what I'm about to say is that we have this whole kind of plot about the mass hysteria the and all of this. And then suddenly the whole last act is just about the tragedy of this one man. Will he sully his good name? And that I get why, again, because of all that 1950s history that I brought up, mm -hmm. why naming names is very important to this, but it doesn't really feel connected with everything that came before it, that this is the big thematic point that we're ending on here. I also think it's kind of weird that John Proctor was a real person who, whose name he took out of the annals of history and kind of does sully his good name in this way. We know he does. He never had him. an affair with Abigail. Well, that we know of what, like what Puritan documents would have kind of really. Well, we know that he was 60 and she was like 13. So <laughs> big age. Yeah, but that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that's, anything back yeah, then. Yeah, that's well, actually an average. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. We don't, we know so little about these people. So he, the fact that he can, like, I don't know, I would have thought you, Mac, of all people would have been kind of concerned about this with the Amadeus conversation we have about, you know, taking people from history and putting stories and sins and flaws I do. on I do, I do feel bad for okay. Tom Proctor in this, <laughs> the real yeah, man. Well, Cause I'm like, well, they have cause it is. It is specifically like sullying. Yeah, I know. And, and that's, it's more for me, it's not because I care about, you know, all of that history stuff, as we discussed in Amadeus, as much as it is because I just see the irony in sullying his name in this yes. way through this play when that's what it's about. Anyway, that's a gripe. We don't have to <laughs> belabor this. <laughs> Good point, though. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yes. All right. Let's get into the next question, though. Speaking of cast and characters. What were your thoughts on the cast and which actor stood out to you? Jill, since you went last and the last question, I'll let you lead this question sure. off. Yeah, I thought the cast was quite tight. Mm -hmm. um, also, apologies. I've just recently watched The Village by M. Night Shyamalan. So like that's also <laughs> about a secluded town. So I have the, the actors pulled up online mm -hmm. because I want to make sure I'm yeah. talking about this movie. Um, yeah, I thought everyone was very well casted. And uh, again, for what the the text is and knowing that Arthur Miller also wrote the screenplay of this too. Again, it's we I have read the text several times, but it, it has been probably about a year since I've read the script. So it kind of would be neat to kind of go side by side and see how much has been like meticulously changed for film. But yeah, I thought everyone's chemistry was lovely. Actors that stood out to me i'm gonna say two of them so actually three but two i think standy outy ones winona Ryder as abigail williams i thought was brilliant that's also a character i would love to play i think there's so much to do with that character and in the further questions i have some directorial ideas for what mm. can be done with that character too but i thought she really played the pendulum of abby like the very innocent, keep your mouth closed when you need to, and then be a puppeteer on the other side of things and just keep digging that hole and doing whatever you need to do to feel safe and loved. And I think she really did that. Like, especially her scenes with Daniel Day-Lewis, like I felt the melty lust and just like she will wipe, wipe blood across her face for this man you know mm -hmm. but then in in the court scenes her just kind of not reacting i was catching myself in those scenes like that is a reaction like i just thought yeah it was very well done and then i also want to shout out karen graves as mary warren her arc mm -hmm. is 
I always find this with Mary. Like it's right underneath Abby's. And it's kind of similar, but not. It's like a naive version of Abby. Yeah. And I just felt like the way that that Karen had her arc bubbling and then you really saw her insanity in the courthouse of like, it's the classic nightmare we all have of being put on trial and like being told you're wrong and you're like, no, I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. And I just thought it was very well done. And in the late 90s, like kind of fit right into similar kind of a little bit melodramatic acting I think but like not overbearing and just I think shout out to Joan Allen I think that we'll get into this down the line but that was very well deserved her supporting Mm -hmm. um actor nomination there Mm -hmm. very stoic and Elizabeth is very much an anchor point in this piece in very she's a hard role to play because she's not a flashy character role she's kind of stoic Um, and quiet a lot definitely so i thought she just did really really well with keeping the 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 tent spikes in the ground Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. wonderful ryan yeah i I also have a few i'm not i'm gonna refrain from commenting on daniel day lewis because i know we have another question just for him him. so no need agreed about all the ones that jill said everyone yeah this again great acting in this and i Mm -hmm. hope that community theater comment. Nobody's, if any of the actors in this are watching, is being like, Ryan, you're outside your door with torches and pitchforks. They're like, oh ready my to, God, like, I'm the witch. The <laughs> yeah, you're the witch okay. now, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I'll just name a few then, and then before they come knock down my door. So, of course, my number one is Paul Schofield. He's a legend for a reason. As, oh, I, the face you're making, really, Mac, really? Mm-hmm. He's Sir Thomas More, you coward what are you talking about but uh, um, boys boys (laughs) okay no i think he's fantastic like again he's a legend for a reason every line delivery in this is just so unpredictable and yet in my opinion at least feels so right like there's no other way i could think of doing the lines after he does them even though they're like he's making some wild choices and every like inflection he does is just crazy I like it I to me I feel like it's a master class in just very unpredictable but exciting acting. I don't know. I thought that was really amazing. And he really does find the humanity in this character that is just so easy to hate. So yeah, he gets my shout out. Fight me, Mac. I don't know. Wow. All right, you ready, Ryan? Let's throw down. I'm ready. Do, do, do you want to fight? Do you want to have the Paul Schofield fight or do you want me to finish my list? <laughs> finish your list and then we'll have the Paul Schofield fight. Because he's on <laughs> my list as well, but for different wow. reasons. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so, okay. Another one to give a short shout out for is George Gaines, who plays the other judge, Samuel Sewell. Um, he's a man of very few words. He's always drinking, but he's quietly stealing every scene that he's in. Yes. And he does make it for a very good moral foil to Danforth mm-hmm. in pretty much every scene. It's something that's also, I just think, is neat about the play and by extension the movie is that in Salem, there actually were a lot more judges than what we see in the play. But Miller, he says in a little prefatory note in the text of the play that he condensed the number of judges to just these two. And I think he really did set up a very good moral dichotomy three there is judges? three yeah okay. yes so that's maybe, true there is judge harris who was in who was he interrogating martha Corey. okay so judge just... judge john hawthorne and then judge samuel sewell and judge thomas okay. stanforth yeah. yeah okay which all three of them sorry just to briefly piggyback all three of the character those characters written mm-hmm. are all very different judges which mm-hmm. i kind of picked yes. up yeah like i think it's john Hawth- hawthorne and then the, the judge who like 
doesn't really say anything but observes everything. Mm, yes. Right? Okay. And then you have the so other one, one in the who's kind of drinking and okay. loosely using yeah. the judicial power to like mess stuff up. And then you have Thomas Danforth, who's really like the sticking. Yeah. Yeah. He is it was the, just, the... yeah. The yeah, justice okay. system represented in three ways through those three characters. Mm -hmm. Three Oops, wise guys. Yeah. 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 So apologies to history and to Arthur Miller and to these actors <laughs> for getting the number of judges wrong. But yes, I, I do. I just think, yeah, he deserved a shout out. I thought he was very, very good in everything he did. Uh, I want to give a shout out to uh, Charlene Woodard, who plays Tituba. Um, mm. She is. She is not in it much. It's a you know pretty yeah. small role, all things considered. But the pain she displays in that one brutal scene, yes. like the the way the camera keeps cutting to the girls flinching, and that's how mm -hmm. I felt watching it. It is just awful to to watch. But she really yeah. does sell it in her performance. And her and back is bleeding afterwards too. In the next bedroom scene, when they come up to the bedroom, yeah. you can yeah. see that her back is bleeding as yeah. well. Yes. So they definitely lean into the violence that she went through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also will say I'm not familiar with this performer from other things, but I was looking her up while I was making my list, and she's apparently in the main casts of two popular TV shows right now, no. Pose and the Marvel Secret Invasion show, neither of which I have watched, but it's good yes, to know that her career is that. going she well. Plays, she plays the uh, the wife of uh, Samuel Jackson's character in Secret Invasion. Neat. Cool. Yeah. Who has a secret about her, but I will not spoil what that is. Okay, <gasps> it's in the title, so it's not a big. <laughs> anyway, one just one two yep. two last quick ones are Peter Vaughn and Mary Pat Gleason as Giles and Martha Corey, respectively. So good. I, they're just I, I don't know what to say. They're just perfect for those roles. They look exactly like how I picture these characters mm -hmm. to look reading it, and yeah, I thought they did a great job. Sorry, that's yes. a lot, but continue. No. All right, Ryan, let's throw down over this. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess should. should or um, or no, I'll start with the positives first, and then I'll get to sure. Paul Schofield. So as I will say, I'll piggyback off everybody so far. It's a solid cast. They create a really good community together on screen. You felt the interpersonal dynamics. Like, what's his name who plays Giles Corey? Is, what's his name, Ryan? Uh, yeah, Peter Vaughn. Peter Vaughn. Peter Vaughn, yeah. who we know from Game of Thrones as Maester Aemond from The Wall. Oh, right. The blind, the blind guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so that's him. But then his cantankerous relationship with uh, Putnam there uh, mm -hmm. of uh, uh, <laughs> on Ferris Bueller's principle is like perfectly. You see how they can hate each other. It's great. Mm -hmm. Same thing with what's his name who plays Reverend Paris. Oh, uh, but, um, Bruce Davison. Bruce Davison, who many people know from the X Men movies because he played Senator Cal Keeley. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, like once again, a lot of character actors. His whole arc of guilt and. Wanted to hold on to his powers. Very well done. But I will say my shout out goes to Francis Conroy, who many people will now know as a frequent player in the American Horror Story franchise. But she in this plays the 1600s Karen and Putnam. And oh my goodness, is she ever so delicious to watch in this. She is so piously bitchy. And it's great. I love how calculatingly evil she is in this where she is out to get certain women in the town who she feels killed her what was it like eight nine children she's had uh, you know so she's like like that classic karen who will just destroy people who she's like actively wanting to get her claws into and then when she's watching the woman get hanged you watch francis's reaction and it's almost orgasmic with what she is watching and it's like such a like spellbinding performance. Like even her in the courtroom scenes where she is in the back 
spraying in the background. It's like, oh my goodness, does she ever just have that energy about her where I'm like, you're terrifying in this <laughs> role. Like you are the master manipulator here. Like you, you can see like where the girls are getting their energy from. And it's from the women like you in the town who are absolutely ready to like pounce. At, uh, I'm thinking of the, the scene where she like screams across the bed. I just thought yes. about that. I, I got mm-hmm. goosebumps. Yeah, that yes. that was really because it was a little bit outside of the tone that was happening mm-hmm. in that scene. But then she yeah. just like leapt across the bed. I was like, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. She's perfect. And once again, she brings that heightened hysterical energy, but in a really restrained, pious way. Because the outfit she wears is so corseted up. She's got the headdress mm-hmm. on the high collar. It's like she. I mean, I would love to see her play Mother. Uh, the what's her name, Sister Aloysius in Doubt. I think she would be a terrific substitute for, for for like the Meryl Streep in that role. She'd be great in that. But uh, but I will say, okay, let's get to Paul Schofield here, Ryan. I do let's love do his voice. He has such a bewitching voice. But every line he read was so slow. It killed the energy. No, he controls the time. room. Everything revolves the around him. The only scene I wanted him to be slow was what was when they bring Elizabeth into the courtroom and he's interrogating her. That's the one scene where I'm like, you can draw this scene out. The rest of the time, you should have calmness, but energy that's like keeping the scene at its heightened peak because he's turning every which way, trying to keep himself where he is, which is so good. But I'm like, I've seen so I've seen like because I've seen other Danforths who have just a certain energy about them that drive the scene. And like, uh, like, uh, like, especially when like they're interrogating Mary Warren and, and um, Abigail, and they're really driving the, the, the severity of what's going to happen to them in on this. And he's trying to keep everybody contained, but you got Putnam and Giles just ripping at each other. Like he's just always there keeping it together. But at the same time, he is just a bulldozer in the scene, or at least he should be. And Paul Schofield, I love him dearly. It was like the slow cement roller moving through a scene. Uh, and I'm like, I don't know. dude, I, you're killing me. Come on, I, a little bit I, faster with the lines. To me, it's like, at this point of the 90s, he's like the most famous person here. He knows this to be true. And he's just like, I am going to just chew yep. the scene and yep. milk this for yep. all it's worth because people are here to see me, probably. Yep. And I just yeah, love but it. That's- but that should not be as your job as an actor. That should no. not be fueling your performance. I no, will kind job. of, kind of go with Mac on this. Yeah. Just in like, I think there needed to be a little bit more character or vocal variety because it did variety. kind of strike. Well, <laughs> not necessarily as in like, but character variety. Like mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. he does have the power. He does that. But there were some mm-hmm. scenes. Where, like what you just brought up, Ryan, it's kind of like what we just did our review in A Few Good Men. Like, it's the same thing with Jack Nicholson in that movie. I'm like, so what? You're like a phenomenal actor of this time. Like, mm-hmm. give me something. You know, there were moments where like... Yeah, I felt like I got a lot. Agree to disagree. I don't know. Like, <laughs> like, like Danforth should be almost like Meryl Streep and Devil Wears Prada. He, like, he should come in. I'm Miranda. He should be Miranda <laughs> where, 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 where it's like, like, where it's like, Meryl Streep plays pace. So yeah. well in that, like the first thing she comes in with Emily, she is rattling off shit. And then you get to the, what is that? That saffron, sapphire. Yeah, she just like looks. Turquoise scene. And just that yep. slow monologue of how she explains how fashion works and how Andy's choices, even though she thinks are rebellious, are really not. It's like a slow, deadly 
bear trap that's closing on your foot. But at the same time, she can be as lightning fast as she wants to be in the next scene. And that's why I was missing with Paul Schofield. Was, there's no pace in the line. He can keep the monotone because the monotone is scary when it needs to be. But there needs to be some pace in the line sometimes. I, I again, agree to disagree. <laughs> Ryan's agreeing to disagree here. Yeah. Anyway, Sarah. <laughs> Let's open the floor like? to Sarah. Yes. <laughs> Sarah, where are you sitting in all of this? I'm seeing faces going. What do you think of Paul Schofield? Where do you follow this argument? I'm so sorry, Ryan. I do think I have to fall with Jill and Mac on this one. I there was it's not that there wasn't moments that I really liked, but I I do think I've had sort of a mixed reaction to him. I it, it wasn't totally standing out to me, but I couldn't articulate why. And hearing you all debate this sort of helped me. So thanks. But that nice. I think was it. It was the I think you're right that the pacing and some variety in pacing that can create power because mm-hmm. if sometimes you're rattling things off, you're attacking, 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 the moments that are slow and commanding have more weight if that yes. wasn't what you just were doing the whole time. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that maybe there was just some levels or some layers that were missing there that might have helped bring a little bit more. Uh, and I agree as well with Mac's interpre- interpretation that there was times where it felt like the pace of the film dragged a bit. And I do think that hysteria and panic is what accounts for some of the bad decision-making. Mm-hmm. So if people mm. are too slow and they're like, how are they not realizing this is silly? It's because yeah. things are happening so fast. Like people make bad decisions when they're rushed, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So I do think that sometimes in a situation, mm-hmm. like in a movie that's about hysteria, that's about, you know, what is the truth? How do we know what the truth is? Ah, it's a witch hunt. Like part of what makes that happen is mm-hmm. panic and fear and speed. And so mm-hmm. eliminating all the speed from the trial, I don't know if that makes sense mm-hmm. with the context of what happened, I guess. So mm-hmm. I think I would tend to agree that some variations in pace in his sections where he is really the driving force probably would have helped me just yeah I think it would have taken that performance to the next level for me and maybe helped with some of the problematic pacing of that part of the film but should I get into my shout out yeah yes yes I want to shout out two people who were the who had the two moments that were my favorite moments of the movie and the first one is Winona Ryder. I completely agree. I thought she killed this. Mm. I think in a lot of the scenes that she was in, she carried it. <laughs> like in this, in most of her scenes, Daniel Day-Lewis, that I won't get into right now, she <laughs> carried it. So They stunk, for lack of a better word. Sorry. Thank you. Yes. Uh, <laughs> she is why. Just hold them back. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I'm so glad. Yeah. She carried it. I was really impressed with the depth that she brought to the role. I think the trap of the role is that it can become this sort of like arch villain that's sort Mm -hmm. of not believable as a real human. I think she found that it's like Jill, you said the pendulum between Mm -hmm. this love struck lusty teen, naive, her naive moments, and then her evil moments. Like she really brought (laughs) a complexity and a humanness to the role that was very believable. And I'm giving her a shout out also because she had one of my favorite moments in the film, which is when after they they finish the trial and they marry Warren, they think she they, she's a bird in the sky and they all like run out and they're in that like pond or lake. Yes. 
Yeah. And it's at the They're running to the ocean. Running, it's a lake. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a lake. And then they run out there and it's in that moment where they're like accusing John Proctor and then he kind of mm-hmm. just decides to give up and it say he, he's guilty. It like pans to her and you see mm-hmm. for the first time it strikes her that yeah. she could actually have cost him his life as well. And she has this like just truly like shocked, horrified expression. And that mm-hmm. was one of my favorite moments of the film because it was like, oh, there's the human, right? Like it brings you, why is she doing this? It's actually because she loves him and you're seeing that yep. layer. So love that. And then my other show that is, uh, no one mentioned Rob Campbell who played Reverend Hale. Mm-hmm. He's great. He was, a, to me, mm-hmm. one of the stars. Like honestly, yes. every scene he was in, particularly as the film progresses and he kind of mm-hmm. goes through his whole journey. I couldn't mm-hmm. take my eyes off him. Like he, mm-hmm. he also was so authentic, mm-hmm. so emotionally mm-hmm. committed, so believable. Yeah. And yeah. one thing that I wanted to shout out for him as well is that the language, and of course we're dealing with like period language in this film. And I think some people mm-hmm. handle that better than others. And with him, it was like, oh, this is how he actually talks. Like, yeah. It actually fit. Like he mm-hmm. made the words sound real. Like they are yeah. his own <laughs> yeah. thoughts. And his one of his moments was also one of my fa- my second, you know, favorite moment in the film is when we're finding out. Like John Proctor is revealing to him that Mary Warren has said that this was a lie for the first time, and mm-hmm. he's like, "Oh, why didn't you tell me?" And John Proctor's like, "Well, I don't remember what he says, but he says something kind of like I don't know if you would care or listen or something." And he like. He gets so upset and he's like, I've signed 17 death warrants this week <laughs> yes. based on this testimony. Yeah. That was one of the best moments of the film. Yeah. I was like, he was the best in, in, in that trust. And he brought the yes. energy. And then Paul yeah. Schofield killed it <laughs> in, the, in his response lines. That's exactly yeah. it. It's his, he found that balance of yeah. like, mm-hmm. that case yeah. and that fear mm-hmm. and the, the, every thought that he, every character thought. Mm-hmm. was just so clear in his eyes like mm-hmm. and, and his journey like he also has a complicated arc from the beginning to the end yeah and I, believed, mm-hmm. I believed him at the beginning when he was hunting for the witches and i believed mm-hmm. him at the end when he was angry at for job for yeah yeah i think just if i can add to that too like uh, this character analysis that i think yeah you're right rob campbell slayed because this also like reverend john hale is like the outsider coming into this so he's getting hit with like, I need to figure out all the information. I need to kind of be the neutral party between Paris and Danforth, who are both very headstrong men that will do anything it takes to gain order or reputation. And to see him like watching his performance, kind of like I found myself like like feeling short of breath because you could just see him be like, no, 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 we should listen or like, no, 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 but there's this and like. He's keeping all this information and things are just going off the rails. And it's just through his character, like even in the trial scene, like when he goes up to Danforth and is like, why would a man say that and mar his name? Mm-hmm. You know, like he is telling the truth. Why are we? But then he gets kind of swept in the background again. And then the very end of the film, when they show Abigail kind of seeing at him on his horse, kind of living his life and then. Bam, the next scene, she's accusing him, like, or sorry, living his life. And the next scene, she's accusing his wife. It's like, yeah. no, <laughs> I know I was heartbroken. I was like, not him. He's just trying. Like, he's such a voice of 
uh, like, can we just yeah. all listen to each other and actually mm-hmm. like try to find the truth and mm-hmm. lies are the truth in this piece, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I almost see Hale, historically speaking, as almost RFK, because if you don't know historically, RFK did work for McCarthy on the communism panels until he realized McCarthy was a bad egg and was going to sink his political career and was really accusing innocent people. And he kind of ditched it really fast, kind of went, I'm out. He's too far. He's wrong. And spoke out against McCarthy, kind of did a flip flop there. So every time I've read, I'm like, there's a bit of RFK in this, which is fascinating. And I would love to see Rob Campbell play RFK because he has the RFK cherubie face there so I was like, oh, <laughs> rob campbell's so good but he was so good i mean i mean that scene where he says i renounce this court and stomps out of the pond i'm like yep i am with you even though at the beginning of this i was frustrated with you you know it, it was perfect like he he like reverend Rever- Rever- is such a great character that oh gets overlooked for like one of the best arcs in the whole play oh yeah mm-hmm. And oftentimes yeah. doesn't get the recognition he deserves in the play. And it's always like, oh, yeah, then there's that actor play, playing Reverend Hale. It's like, no, no, like you, he should be almost like the center character. Yeah. He's almost like yeah. juror number eight in 12 Angry Men. <laughs> comes in and goes, no, guys, listen, look at the facts. Don't just, you know, lead by your emotion and your prejudice. It's so good. Mm-hmm. So good. So there we go. All right. What was your favorite production or design element? Who would like to start this one? Who's got something new and innovative to say about this? Sarah, because you went uh, last last time. Sure. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's new and innovative, but <laughs> I do have an opinion. Um, mm-hmm. my, I think my, produ- my favorite production element was the cinematography. Mm-hmm. There was one shot that really stuck with me, and it was going back to that lake scene again. It's mm-hmm. right before that when the girls start you know, envisioning Mary Warren in the rafters as the big bird. There's this great shot where the girls run out of the barn, but I've all of the crowd follows and the, and then the camera like follows them in sort of a single shot out Mm -hmm. and then like goes Mm -hmm. up into sort of a bird's eye view and like (laughs) turns around over the crowd. Mm -hmm. And I felt like it was just, I was like, Oh, that's good. Because first mm-hmm. of all, you as on the other side of the camera yep. sort of become the imaginary bird <laughs> that yes. they're screaming at. It also just mm-hmm. because you go up into that bird's eye view and it's kind of circling, mm-hmm. it really highlighted that frenzied chaos that mm-hmm. I think why it stuck with me is because I felt like that was missing a little bit earlier in that court scene. Yes. They found it there. And mm-hmm. the camera work, I felt really helped create that mm-hmm. in a really powerful way. And uh, similarly, I also thought the camera work in the hanging scene was really well done because it was very hard to watch, despite the fact that you didn't really see anything graphic, Mm -hmm. which I appreciated because Mm -hmm. it's nice to watch stuff that isn't going to be like scarring, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. also, but without taking away from the power and the impact and how horrible it is, like you're still like, ah, every time Mm -hmm. it happens. And I just thought it was cleverly done. Mm-hmm. And even in that final moment, as you're hearing the Lord's Prayer, and it's like they're getting closer and closer to John Proctor's face until you and you're just left with the noose, like very well done. So I just felt like the camera work really mm-hmm. helped to highlight and further the themes of the film. So yeah, that mm-hmm. was my shout out. 
if I could pick you Ryan, up. Ryan, go. Jill, I, know, I know you wanted to say too, but mine is kind of, Sarah, you've taken the words out of my mouth on a lot of these things that like I was also going to kind of shout out cinematography and, you know, those were great moments. The one that you didn't mention that I will kind of shout out here, although Mac, you mentioned this moment earlier, so I'm going to probably find out you hated this too, all the things I mm. like, but <laughs> it, it's in the, the scene when Elizabeth is brought into the courtroom and mm -hmm. John and Abigail have their backs to her and they're not allowed yes. to look at her and she needs to corroborate John's testimony. And the and light. The, the, yeah, the camera's pushing on her. It's almost like the famous shot mm -hmm. from Jaws, not quite yeah. the ripple effect, but it yes. sort of has that vibe. And then the light comes in right I love her. it. I love yeah, that shot. Once again, yeah, okay. that's the one point where Paul Scovel can be slow because it's the dread in the building yeah. of it was Elizabeth going to say. That's well, where Paul can drag it out. <laughs> and like, I've always loved that scene in particular. Mm -hmm. It's so tense. There's really no way to mess it up, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But and but the thing that I love so much about it is that you, you know, you, Mac, earlier, you said that like, ah, Elizabeth, what are you doing? But the, you know, that is the thesis of, you know, John's arc mm -hmm. is encapsulated mm -hmm. in there that, you know, when push came to shove, she didn't trust that he would have confessed to his grave sin. So yep. when she had to make a moment, she stained her own reputation right there, told them mm -hmm. probably the one lie she's told in her whole life. And we have literally heaven's mm -hmm. light coming down on her as she makes mm -hmm. this decision to protect her husband, even if it goes against everything she stands for, because she yep. doesn't trust him in that yeah. moment. Mm -hmm. I think that's what breaks John is mm -hmm. that like, ah, if only I had confessed earlier and then she mm -hmm. wouldn't have doubted me in this way. And I just, everything about mm -hmm. the framing of that scene just conveyed it's it so perfectly. Shot. Yes. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Agreed. Joe? Yeah, I, I think I do have something innovative to say Ooh, as I was kind of unpacking my brain. So this is going to be like super intricate, but like my favorite production element was the blocking of generations in intimate scenes and mm. let me kind of unpack that is through the attic scenes and like the ones whether they're up in like paris's like attic where the girls yeah. are yeah we're mary um, or we're mary sleeping yeah or no Ruth, not Ruth, mary betty. Ruth, Ruth, betty yes one of them um, one of the girls, one of them, girls. betty yes okay so so that scene and then also when all when the like court breaks mm -hmm. up and they all go to sit at that long table like all of the mm -hmm. men are sitting and talking mm -hmm. like where do we go from here i think something that this piece even through reading it and then now watching the movie that you can kind of ratchet up a bit is mm -hmm. the the different generations presented in not only the women but in everybody in this society mm -hmm. and how their reactions to like witchcraft religion tradition etc cetera, etc cetera, are or like how enthralled they so for example so like in the attic scenes when they're all over betty there's that one scene where i believe it is let me pull up the it's thomas putnam uh, and Putnam, and I think it's Paris, but they're like right, right. hovering over the edge, and they're like, wake up, right? And they're completely derailing Reverend Hale's questioning. I'm like, you guys, step mm -hmm. back. We have all these like older folks of the society being like, okay, something's disrupting our tradition. Like, we got to get to the bottom of it. Bah, 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 bah. And then you have the girls kind of stepping back. And then there's even another scene where you have the girls like kind of hanging on the staircase, like observing from afar. And to me, I just see that as like a very different 
and kind of like, yeah, it's surfacing like the polar differences in generations in a society like that, right? Mm. Like the young folks are still kind of observing and absorbing and figuring out who they are and especially the girls, right? Like a lot of them Mm -hmm. are under Abby's sort of control in a way, but they're very vulnerable and yeah, like at that stage in their life where they're, but then you have the older folks who are like, this is the way, this is the law. And so I just thought like the blocking and that keeping little clusters where the camera, you'd get a peek and to kind of add to the layers of what's happening in those scenes. And then just to touch briefly, like I said, when all the the men, mostly the men, but it's also just like older people of society go to, I think, was it Putnam's house or whose house did they go to with that big long table where they'd sit and it's like it's like the little side house off from the courtroom yeah something like that but again it's like it again it's very subtle but in the blocking of like who's sitting down in those scenes who's getting a drink in Mm -hmm. those scenes who's nervously in the corner in those scenes and again Mm -hmm. you kind of see now mostly it's the men doing the talking and the movement but you see like like a Giles Corey, who's a little bit more lax, maybe in his blocking. But then you see Thomas mm-hmm. Putnam, who's like standing in the one spot and he's not moving. Like I just, again, it, it just mm-hmm. added the different blocking, I guess. Yeah, like added to characterization and also this multi-layered generational and uh, compact yeah. life that this society lives, right? It, it's so small, yet it's combusting and there's a lot of, Everyone dresses the same, but there's not a single character in this play mm-hmm. that is the same, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love that. Love that. Well, I will also pivot to a something that we usually never talk about, which is the makeup design. And that was led by Naomi uh, Dawn, I believe is how you say her last name. But I loved her makeup design for this because she let the world be the world. She did not try and Hollywoodize any of the women. Like even when, like even like Winona Ryder there in the background, like yes, her skin is not blotchy, but it's not like you know, big eye makeup, you know, perfectly quaffed hair. Like it looks kind of lived in and worldly, and you know, like like the actress who plays Mary Warren, she's got pimples all over her face, like you know, uh, you know, like Elizabeth, she's got like, almost no makeup. Same thing with Frances uh, Conroy. Uh, as Ann Putnam, like there's like no makeup, like it is like maybe a little bit of blush, maybe a bit of like skin toners to even things out a bit, but it's really kept like even like this girl behind me here who has a great character face, like there's <laughs> no makeup on her face, I would say. Mm-hmm. It's pretty laid out as it is. And I love that. I mean, once again, we'll, we'll get more into the Daniel Day-Lewis of it all, but like even him and the way he looked. You know, it was very worldly and earthly. Same thing with Giles Corey. Like, they're farmers. They're tanned. They're dirty. <laughs> Versus, you know, Paris, who is, you know, a clergyman. Same thing with Reverend Hale there. Uh, you know, like, yes, they're clean, but they're not, you know, fresh out of the tub clean. There's still, you know, dust on them. Like, I, like it isn't perfect, you know. And I love that touch. Because once again, it, and even the teeth, their teeth were yellow. Like Paul Schofield had great yellow teeth, old man yellowy teeth. And it's like just that. And, and then, you know, like once they come out of the imprisonment, all the men and women who were being imprisoned all have really gungy looking teeth. And, you know, it's, it was some distracting because they did a lot of close ups to Dan Day Lewis and that my name's because <laughs> these really dirty teeth. I'm like, I wish he just had that the whole way through because really his teeth would look like that, you know, all the way through. 
It's the same thing they did when they, when they did um, Les Mis with Tom Hooper. Tom Hooper was big on, they're going to be singing live on set. They got to have nasty looking teeth. They can't have Hollywood white teeth. It's going to be very distracting. And I think this did it as well. Like it's pretty toned down. It's not Hollywood looking. And that's something I appreciated is as it helped keep the world in the world and not feel like a big Hollywood production. And guess what? Makeup can do all of those things. You don't have to actually put yourself through that. Shocking. I know. Yeah. Shocking, Jill. Shocking. We'll get to that. Stay tuned. (laughs) Also, like, I I can't say I specifically noticed that Proctor's teeth were worse after prison than they were before, but I got, you gotta wonder what is John Proctor's dental hygiene regimen that a couple days in prison would actually disrupt? Like, I thought because he's probably out on the fields, like chewing on like mint <laughs> like, leaves or something. Yeah, or and his or, natural toothbrush is gone. <laughs> I guess so. I thought, I thought John Proctor's supposed to be like locked up for months because in every stage uh, he yeah, always comes know. out like looking really haggard and I, either way, I just can't that was imagine. I had a problem with the movie is John Proctor was way too good being locked up for like a few months because we see like winter go by and we're into the spring so it's like i imagine daniel day lewis insisted on being locked up for however long john proctor is supposed to be locked up for so i i'm sorry sir we need you on set tomorrow you're gonna have to pretend it's been five months thank you i know know you might have to act (laughs) yeah I, folks, I know we're breaking the order, but I feel like yes. we've danced around this too many times. Do we want to change the True. order of the questions to get into this yes. one? <laughs> I would say let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, so Daniel Day-Lewis is well known for going deep into character for the roles he plays. And this film was no exception. According to reports, uh, while Daniel, like while he, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis was on set, he refused to shower or bathe. And apparently, after, I mean, I doubt this after watching the film again apparently he built his own log cabin that they filmed in not quite sure how that would have worked but that's besides the point uh but anyway did this extensive character work add to his performance for you sarah i know you have strong opinions on this so i'll let you go first oh thank you well i just feel like something you should know about me is that if today i had to mm-hmm. give a ted talk with absolutely no pres- preparation of any kind mm-hmm. and you were like i need you to talk for 5 mm-hmm. minutes about something go i would talk about how i think method acting is garbage and (laughs) self-indulgent stupidity so this is the thing i feel very strongly about however i try to keep an open mind here because we've seen many wonderful performances that people did who are method actors and while i do not agree with that method being necessary you know i was willing to keep an open mind here and i just hated it so much and i I actually think the method acting might have hindered his performance, but absolutely, I'll get to that in a mm-hmm. second. But the reason I didn't like the performance was because I just felt it like it was not authentic. It did not feel real or grounded. It was like it, there was no nuance to it for me. There was kind of two modes. Like through most of it, it was like, hello, like, are you there? Like it was just like, <laughs> of anything there was a lot of squinting like a lot of brooding squinting face like pulling a brooding face but like Mm -hmm. nothing behind the eyes like no character like i understand he's supposed to be a reserved kind of quiet grouchy character but like you can be quiet and i can see your character's point of view in what you're thinking like i should be able to tell you have a Mm -hmm. thought about what's happening in front of you nothing like it was just Mm -hmm. but then it would his only other choice was like rage 
So it was either like flat nothing, giving his scene partner nothing, or rage. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. my problem with that is the rage scenes felt more emotionally present and more honest. And I did feel improved throughout the film to the mm -hmm. point where by the end, when he got into the, no, it's my name, like I started to believe him more, mm -hmm. like it felt more authentic. But the mm -hmm. problem was he has yet, the only emotional commitment he's made through the entire movie is rage. So yeah. by the end, when he's yelling that, but it's my name, I was like, he's yelling again like it kind of <laughs> lost power because mm -hmm. every single scene he'd yelled up until then mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. i just i was missing any sort of like layers or complexity mm -hmm. to this person mm -hmm. and it really frustrated me that in his like he just was not connected to anyone mm -hmm. he was in a scene with he said yeah, lines yeah. like they were a rehearse. Like, you know, when you go to see bad Shakespeare and people say Shakespearean lines in like a Shakespeare voice, and yes. it just feels like that's how a lot of his lines felt. It felt like he was just saying things in a sort of announced period voice. Yeah. And he wasn't mm -hmm. connecting with his scene partner, which was really frustrating because he had fantastic scene partners who were given it. And he yeah. was like, just standing there like a log. Like it was so weird. And so I, what I felt like, was it took the power out of the but it, like it is my name moment because mm -hmm. there needed to be some sort of climax there but yeah. there wasn't because he had no other he hadn't made any you know varying choices throughout <laughs> and i felt like so my issue with method acting is that i think it's really self-indulgent like it's all mm -hmm. about you and your process and how you're getting into the character it's like very mm -hmm. internal and my problem, I actually think it held him back because what would have made mm -hmm. his performance stronger is if he had maybe like showered and spent <laughs> less time building a house and maybe <laughs> in front of Joan Allen, Academy Award nominated Joan Allen. And when she was talking to him, he listened. Like, yeah. listen to your scene partner, be present to your scene partner, listen to them and respond mm -hmm. in an authentic way in the moment. Mm -hmm. That's the most powerful yeah. acting you see on the screen. Mm -hmm. But he couldn't yeah. do that because he was too in his own mind and the house he was building. Like he wasn't there present with the people he was in the scene with. So, mm -hmm. yeah, my I felt like the, the method acting actually ruined his performance. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's my strong rant about Daniel Day-Lewis. Jill? I'm going to piggyback because mm -hmm. I've got a lot of threads to pick up from, not phantom threads though, ah just regular threads to pick up from what Sarah said. So, yeah, to me, like, again, this is where uh, I'll bring this up in our adaptation question, or, like what I think more can be done with this piece. We'll get to that. But the women in this piece, if it is about John Proctor at the end, which Ryan's kind of already said, like the tone or the arc of what the piece is kind of switches to. We have a magnifying glass over John Proctor. It's like Abby and Elizabeth have both of his arms right and like they're pulling him mm -hmm. which way and they're pulling at his heart mm -hmm. at least like that's where as the actor you should be going like when Renona Ryder is literally throwing her gorgeous ass face at you how does that make you feel it may not you may not feel love but I I need to feel that you want to put her up against that log cabin like do you know what I mean and that, again <laughs> going what Sarah said like the heightened 
And even like the small silent scenes between mm-hmm. he, him and Elizabeth, like he did get better at it as it kind of went down the line. Mm-hmm. But again, where there's the the lust and the love of someone of a character that's going to say my my name and have that rage every emotion has to be as intense as rage so that lust and that love for both of these women who are pulling you mm-hmm. left and right that's got to be there that's the be all and end all so to prep yourself you're right building this cabin first of all stage manager mom's coming out is that happened to code? What the actual F? That is no. <laughs> like, I'm like, I really hope there were set people watching this happen or helping. Also, Honestly. hygiene, okay? Like, you have almost, a, you have a makeout scene with Joan Allen. You have a hugging scene with Joan Allen. Please do not repulse your actors. Hygiene is a thing, okay? So, like, I want there to be a Saturday Night Live sketch where, like, it's just, like, the stage manager woman or man or whoever who runs into the scenes of Daniel Day-Lewis's movies and, like, offer something for everyone else on set. Yeah, so it's just, and and you're so right, Sarah. Like, it, it just impede, like, all of this work that, like, the actor has to do to fortify the piece. Like, do the o- basically, like, the only historical thing that maybe he should look up is, like, how does a farmer of that era move, right? Like, the tool he's using at the beginning, have someone teach you how to use that properly. I love period specificity. Nothing irks me. The dramaturgy in my brain, like nothing irks me more when I see like a modern actor or like a contemporary actor absolutely not doing any of their homework on that sense. So I'm like, from a subtle method like don't immerse yourself in it, but like research do your research. Good. Yeah. And if you need to put on some shabby clothes and use that tool, go for it. But that's the only thing we're really seeing that you need to get. The rest is just connection with people. And the piece isn't about you being grungy and being a farmer. It is about like how your insides are completely not your own by the end, you know, like so, yeah, it's just, I don't understand it. I, I, we could even, like, talk about, like, Jared Leto, like, who is another method acting junkie sending, like, de- dead gerbils to a Suicide yeah. Squad castmates. I'm like, <laughs> what is this accomplishing? Like, oh, because this is what the Joker would do. Newsflash, you're not the Joker. You're not John Proctor. Like, you're right. Act. Like, you are an actor. Your body is a malleable instrument, not one that needs to be smelly and impede other people's performances anyways yes it impedes other performances this is what makes me so mad is imagine you're joan allen trying to give your beautiful subtle like there's a character who's stoic and you see everything that's going on in her mind and you're trying to do that and all you can smell is daniel k lewis like it's distracting It does not yeah. make you feel safe on set and you are not going to give your best, most vulnerable performance when you're with people. Absolutely it not. It not make you feel safe and comfortable. Like, it's just, it's so rude. Well, like, and that's the thing. It's like, in connection, it, like, even just talking from, like, an actor's perspective, too. And, like, Sarah, you can back me up in this. But, like, like the backbone of any scene is, like, eye contact and like connection with scene partner. It's That's the baseline. And, oh, like, yeah. if that's not there because all of your homework that you've done is actually what's behind your eyes in that moment. It's like, you have to put that all away and then just like engulf yourself into the other person, not Mm -hmm. make a, 
engulf them in a cloud and just like that is gonna yeah it's just i don't even want to get into i've researched what he made people do for him for phantom thread and it's absolutely disgusting and like for phantom thread violates like human stuff in my opinion supposedly he had just people on set like treat him like when he played like the decrepitness of that character like treat yeah. him so so like help him use the washroom or are you or thinking like, of my left are you thinking of my yeah, left yeah, I appreciate like, oh is that it okay so there you yeah. go yeah, yeah. yeah. When he had but, pretended but to there you go body. i don't even yeah. want to know what he did for phantom thread so sure uh, probably not that much foot, did that, that most but... of that movie anyway also that phantom thread is a movie about how male geniuses or people who present themselves as male geniuses are really just crybabies that is the thesis of that movie it is literally paul thomas anderson made a deconstruction of his actor muse as his final retirement performance which chef's kiss love pt anderson for that but yeah anywho but yes my life but even yeah garbage making pas help him use the bathroom because oh i have cerebral palsy like no you don't you're acting you garbage Uh, sorry (laughs) 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 sorry if you're watching this daniel day but it just goes to show like how many nominations he's had and how many wins like ryan and i researched that of like he's had three best actor wins and then even just thinking about like kind of like the classic thing of what leo dicaprio had to do for the revenant it's like what messages are we telling our actors that like you have to put yourself in such like disgusting harmful situations mm-hmm. that that totally throws any training or experience out the window like mm-hmm. it, it totally it makes and it also makes people who aren't in the industry think oh in order to be a good actor you have to put yourself to the extreme and that is not healthy and that is not true whoever is listening or watching this you can build so many mm-hmm. different tools mm-hmm. you can put it in your mm-hmm. actor tool belt and one of them mm-hmm. not to do is to harm yourself or others around you end yeah. of yeah. my micro ted talk yeah. there yeah go ahead yeah, yeah. <laughs> ryan do you want to go next or shall i you, you know, I, I you've taken a lot of the words out of my mouth both of you so thank you i, mm-hmm. I guess one thing i can add here at least is that if we want to historicize the pro like the history of method acting as a practice like, because method acting does not come from Stanislavski in the Russian Russian tradition. It's specifically Lee Strasberg and this kind of American contorting yeah. of it. And the two most famous practitioners of its early days, Marlon Brando. Marlon and Brando. But in this, there's been a lot of like, you know, historical academic criticism about mm-hmm. this, that it was a masculinity flex. These were guys who thought that acting was a fruity thing for gay people. And I have to prove that I am a vir- virile masculine man by doing it, not like they do it by being macho and committing yeah. to this in a different way because I'm a real man. I'm like, like and you're just actual like, sweat on my wife beater yeah. eating food <laughs> on set. Yeah, I'm going to be disgusting because yeah. that's how you know, like this isn't about craft. This isn't about like, you know, I, I don't even care about the technique like some bozos are doing i'm just gonna do it because that's the thing and mm-hmm. like i've talked about this i think as recently i talked about this on our fringe roundup about the play fatal charade but i also connected it to shows like red velvet the lolita chakrabarty play about ira aldridge that was at crows mm-hmm. last year is it does irk me when things about the history of theater or performance or acting pretend that method acting was always the best way of doing it there's, yeah. there's the teleological nope. endpoint of 
what all great acting was eventually going to become. Ira Aldridge was not a method actor when he played Othello. He was perhaps more authentic than all the white Othellos before him because he was actually a black man. But to <laughs> the way that show presents it, like he waltzed in and started method acting and blew all their minds. Like, no, that's not really how that works. Yeah. Uh, or that, and even just realism as a concept, we fetishize this idea of, oh, it's so real, it's so authentic, and there's nothing more real than just not bathing mm -hmm. because that's what realism is. But no, you can make something look real with makeup, with set dressing. And I guess the last thing I want to say about this is that you would never watch this movie in a vacuum without knowing all of these stories and these mythologies and realize that he built that shed or that log cabin. <laughs> there is absolutely nothing in the text of the film that would signal that to you. And it's totally. a ridiculous thing to assume. Mm -hmm. We only know this because we mythologize performances like this, because if we just mm -hmm. leave it to what's on the screen, it's not that impressive. It only becomes impressive if we prioritize mm -hmm. process over mm -hmm. product. But then yep. the product, as you said, Sarah, goes to shambles. Mm -hmm. And TED Talk. Yeah. yeah. Max, yeah. bring us home. <laughs> well, I mean, I, going to the method, I remember I had an acting coach who told me this really interesting story about the method. Because I was talking about the method, and he goes, my dear boy, because he was British, of course. Uh, he, um, and he goes, my dear boy. Have you ever heard about Dustin Hoffman and Laurence Olivier on Marathon Man? And I said, no, have not heard this story. So he goes, well, the way the story goes is that Dustin Hoffman's character was to be filming a scene on a Monday where his character is supposed to come in grubby, homeless looking, disheveled, whatever. So Dustin Hoffman had the weekend off from shooting. So he decided to lock himself out of his hotel room with no money, no contact whatsoever and spent the weekend being a homeless man in England. He showed up to set on Monday late, looking disheveled and horrible, and Lawrence Levey was rightfully pissed off and said, my dear boy, there are such things as acting and walk yes. off set for the day. <laughs> so that right there put the method into perspective for him. No movie, no performance is worth that. Mm -hmm. No matter how good the performance is, it's not, it's not worth it. We shouldn't be encouraging people to do that. Well, that, well there are certain Daniel Lewis ones that do... I do enjoy his character work. Like, There Will Be Blood, terrific performance where he worked on the character, the voice, the body. It comes across really good. I Drink Your Milkshake, iconic scene. Also, he will always be my definitive Abraham Lincoln. Like, like I remember Spielberg talking about the day when they wrapped filming. And he was actually really sad and broke down, which he never does on film. And he goes, it's because he became so attached to Dan Lewis as Lincoln on set that he felt like he was actually killing Lincoln by calling close the gate and wrap the film. Because Daniels was so it's just Lincoln the whole time. He spoke as Lincoln on set, which once again, yeah. calls away Mr. President and refusing a cell phone creates a lot of problems on a film set. But the performance was very beautiful and he gave a really definitive performance as Lincoln. Anyway, that did not pay off in this film. This film just felt like Dandy Lewis in a bad haircut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like just talking and I didn't connect with him at all and John Proctor's supposed to be a character you can connect with so any character work he did yes. do did not translate onto film and didn't work and you know like that was a major problem for me I mean I also think back to you know DiCaprio doing Titanic James Cameron because DiCaprio was first of all DiCaprio was forced to audition for Titanic which he did not want to do and he kept coming to James Cameron being like, okay, so what about if my character had a stutter? 
or a lisp or a limp. And Jerry Springer was like, nope, you're doing no gimmicks. You're just mm-hmm. going to be a regular human being on a boat. Go. And that's why I like Jack is one of my favorite DiCaprio performances because he is just a natural human being on a mm-hmm. boat <laughs> that is sinking. <laughs> you know, it's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing magical about it. You know, as you said, he's not eating bison meat or killing Sleeping bears in, bear in the woods or whatever the hell he does in, in the Revenant. <laughs> hated that film. That was not a good film at all. I'm excited for his there, the the uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. That looks like a really good film. Anyway, sidetrack there. Anyway, but Daniel Day-Lewis in this film was not great. His character work did not pay off. It just was bland for me. He did not stand out. And because of that, his chemistry with Joan Allen just fell flat. Like I didn't, like, like their big scene on the waterfront where like, you know, they're at this beautiful open view of the ocean and they're having this moment where they haven't seen each other in like five months, even though his beard hasn't grown in like five months somehow. Because I'm sure he refused to actually get a fake beard. Um, there you go, too. It's like, there's a Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> on your face. <laughs> exactly. Like, stick the fake beard on. You know, like, like I remember when Tim came out at the in Act 3 of The Crucible at Stratford, he had this huge, scruffy beard and looked like he had been through hell. And I was audibly like, oh, my God. That's an incredible quick change because like, he gets dragged mm-hmm. off in the back yeah. too, and he's it's back art. on in like, in like back on like two minutes with a full beard and wig and dirt and costume change and looked great. It looked mm-hmm. terrifyingly great. So, Dan Day Lewis, your a character did not pay off in this film. I'm sorry. You know, it doesn't always pay off to be a big character like method actor. Certain times the character work pays off and you get a really good Abraham Lincoln. Other times you get a really bland John Proctor. Oh, you know. Like, once again, as Lawrence Olivier says, it's called acting, my boy. Yeah, like, it's yeah. figure it's it skill. out. It's like, 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 that's why, like, whenever I used to perform, I loved the day when I got my costume because it informed so much of what I did. I remember when I did yeah. Mary Wives of Windsor and I was playing a, a, a Falstaff's sidekick, Robin and Peter, Peter Simple. Simple. <laughs> yes, and they gave me breeches for the role, but the breeches weren't measured right. So every time I sat down, they would ride up my legs and expose my knee. And that wasn't planned. But the first time I got my costume, That's I was oh, funny. Designer is a community costume designer who did not think about how to measure breeches properly. And now they ride up my knee every time. I'm like, that's perfect character. Because that yeah. makes clothes. Anyway, yeah. so the point <laughs> being is, it informed the character that way. I, I didn't go and become Peter Simple in the woods. No. You know, mm-hmm. like that wasn't my character. <laughs> yeah. it, it was the breeches. It was, it, it was from the outside in. And that's the British way you're do- supposed to do it. And it works really yeah. well because you can leave your character at the door at the end of the night, not take it oh. home. So, you know, that there's that. Yeah. Anyway. That's that. Yeah. Yes. All yeah. right. Next question is, this film version shows several scenes and sequences pre- uh, previously off state, previously shown as offstage action, i.e. the women in the woods dancing with Tichuba, uh as uh, before the piece starts. We have the pressing and death of Giles Corey that we hear offstage. There's several scenes like that we just don't see, but we get to hear about. And this was a piece that was adapted by Arthur Miller. So what do we think about him recontextualizing these scenes to be visual scenes versus just verbal retold scenes? And how did that impact your overall experience with this piece? Mm -hmm. Sarah, as this is your favorite play, what do you think? Okay, I'm glad you asked because this is actually... This is one of my favorite questions <laughs> that was in the discussion list for tonight. So I 
totally understood why in the film adaptation they chose mm -hmm. to show these things. Mm -hmm. It made complete sense, mm -hmm. but I think it takes away some of the magic of why this play works so well on stage. Mm -hmm. And to preface this, mm -hmm. I'll say that when I, so specifically thinking about the example of the girls dancing in the woods. Yes. In the film, we see that, right? It's the first scene that we mm -hmm. see in the film and everything follows. Mm -hmm. So when I saw this play in that fateful first year of theater school, you don't see the girls dancing in the woods. And when I saw this play, I quite literally through the entire play did not know whether they had done it or not. Mm -hmm. Because all you have is the testimony of the characters speaking to you on stage. They mm -hmm. are saying, oh, I saw, I caught Abigail dancing. She drank blood. And she's like, no, I didn't. I didn't do that. I didn't dance naked. And all you have is what the characters are saying to you. And you don't know what is true because you didn't see it. And so mm -hmm. you become one of the townspeople. You are at, like, you as the audience are literally as confused as the townspeople are. And that is how you, you connect with the story. Because for me, the whole thing is a he said, she said. I don't know. There's no facts that I know of. And be, so one, it brings me in. I become one of the townspeople. I don't know any more than they know. So I am equally confused and trying to figure out what is right and wrong. That connects me to the piece in a different mm -hmm. way. And it makes the stakes higher. Because if I don't, if I don't know which one is true, like I think watching the film, one of the things that brought the stakes down for me is like, I know Abigail drank the blood. So when they come on screen mm -hmm. and like have a big argument about like, did she drink blood or did she date snake mm -hmm. it? Or was she not, was she casting spells or was she just dancing? It's like, I already know the answer. I saw it. Mm -hmm. So instead of feeling like one of the confused townspeople, I'm just become a bystander. I'm just like, oh, mm -hmm. well, I, I actually know more than the mm -hmm. characters know. Mm -hmm. I, I actually know that. So I can just watch this and see mm -hmm. what happens. It distances yeah. me from the story a bit. And so mm -hmm. I completely understand why they did it. I'm that kind of tool that we use on stage where things happen off stage mm -hmm. away from the like room we're in altogether. Like mm -hmm. I saw the show in a small black box theater and it made it very intimate. And so the, it's kind of me and the actors in the courtroom. And it's like, I'm part of it. And all this action they're talking about happened outside the room. And that really, that's a convention that really works on stage. I don't think that convention works quite as well on film. It's not really how we do movies. They're more realistic, mm -hmm. everything. So I totally understand why they put those scenes in the in the film version. I just think it might be one of the reasons that it was like, okay, you mm -hmm. know, it, one mm -hmm. of the things that really sticks with me from mm -hmm. watching it live all these years later is that feeling of like, I don't know what is true. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know. And it makes me think, what would I do in this situation? Because I don't know what's right and wrong. What, so what is right? Mm -hmm. Should they be doing these trials? Should they not? Like it puts you in sort of a, as an audience member into a sort of a turmoil, like the characters are in. And so I think that's really powerful. It's one of the feelings of, un it's one of the things that gives you that feeling of unease that is really powerful in the play. And I, you know, I know we're going to talk a little bit about why the, did this film connect with audiences or not? And for mm -hmm. me, this is one of the reasons that I think maybe it, it doesn't totally land mm -hmm. because it's mm -hmm. very easy to watch this film as kind of a bystander mm -hmm. like oh this is a historical event mm -hmm. do i care i don't know whereas mm -hmm. you really feel part of it when there's pieces of information you don't even mm -hmm. have and you're as lost mm -hmm. as them so 
while I understand why they made the choice, I wish that maybe there is a way in a in this filmic mm -hmm. adaptation to keep some of that mystery mm -hmm. alive because I think it adds a lot to the point of the piece. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah, if I could piggyback off of that, because I had a very similar thought. Of course, that, like, Ryan, as our adaptation yeah, well, man, give it yeah, to well, us. Well, it's just because, yeah, it's, and I, I, like you said, I completely get why they feel like for a film, we have the freedom to go into different spaces, but, mm -hmm. you know, we got to, you know, again, realism, realism, realism about these mm -hmm. things. But yeah, I, I agree that, you know, courtroom dramas are about we are convening in this place to figure out what happened because we weren't there. Some of us were there and they'll tell us, but we cannot know for sure. We have to deliberate. And yeah, I, part of me wonders if like maybe there was it. I don't know if I probably wouldn't have liked this much either, but maybe a way of preserving some of that mystery to salvage it would be if instead of having that be the opening scene, it was peppered in a little bit. So maybe when people are giving testimony in the mm -hmm. trial, like a sort of Rashomon style, think of like Trial of the Chicago Seven, which, which yeah. like, or, mm -hmm. or even mm -hmm. a few men, also Aaron Sorkin, which was the last screenplay we just reviewed. Uh, but <laughs> it's, but yeah, I'd like something about, you know, using the, the framework of testimony to mm -hmm. try to recreate. I don't know if I love that either, because that's still implying this like objective, like God's eye image that has been recreated as opposed to just verbal testimony of, mm -hmm. you know, but I think there's enough. Mm -hmm ability to be subjective in filmmaking to counteract that. So yeah, but I, I agree. I, I think it, it does hurt the film yeah. overall to open with this. I will say, since this is mentioned in the mm -hmm. question to the pressing of Giles Corey, I mm -hmm. actually like that we got that scene because my mm -hmm. thinking is that, like, as you said at the very beginning, Mac, that witches were not burned in Salem. It was mostly done by hanging. And I don't know if this historical accuracy of this pressing- uh, It is absolutely accurate. Regardless of whether or not it is, it's just so brutal to watch. And I know mm -hmm. it is descri it's described in the play and it's mm -hmm. brutal to hear about. Yeah. But hanging is, you know, as awful as being hung clearly is breaking your windpipe. It is very quick and sanitary mm -hmm. that the just you watch Giles Corey tied up with his arms with rock after rock and him saying more weight. You really feel that intensity, and it brings back some of the claustrophobia mm -hmm. that maybe we lose in the courtroom itself mm -hmm. to really get yes. to see that. So yes. I, I am in favor of having mm -hmm. that scene there, the the witch ritual yeah. at the beginning, yeah. not so much. Yeah, I will back. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, Tierra, do you want to piggyback? It's okay. If I you... feel like you're going to agree with each other and me. <laughs> you go ahead, Mac. I'll, I'll all right. take us home. All right, all right. Yeah. So I will agree, Ryan, that. I remember the first time I saw this play at Soul Pepper and they talked about the pressing of Giles Corey and I went home and looked up what that was. The image of that situation has stuck in my head of the brutality of that. And the fact we get to see that and we love this actor so much and you see the pain on, on Reverend Paris's face when he has to keep saying, lay on, like, let's go. He's not giving up, so we're not giving up here. You know? The fact we see that scene played out is so well done. I mean, the only thing I wish is that he'd had some coughing up blood at the end when he's dying. Because it's like, you know, the rocks are like crushing your ribs, which kills you, punctures the lung and kills you. So if you're going to go for the brutality of it, I mean, which we saw with Tichibo, where he's got the bloody back, I would have loved to have seen just that little bit of blood coming out of the mouth or something just to really hammer home the brutality of that moment. But just seeing it is great because it really does hammer home what was going on in this town. Um, the opening scene, 
I don't mind that we saw it, but I think they went about it the wrong way by keeping it Abigail's perspective of this scene. It should have stuck with Paris, where Paris Mm. hears the door close and he falls into the woods and it's foggy and it's missing. He's going through the trees. He can hear some sounds. He comes upon the scene. The screaming happens and he he just sees, what's her name? Becky, Betty, Ruth, whatever the crazy little girl's name is. Betty, Betty, yeah, Betty. (laughs) Betty collapses and screams. His daughter's screaming. And that's it. The crucible. Yeah. And then mm. he sees the right... frog in the cauldron, maybe. Yes. Maybe he sees the frog. <laughs> maybe he sees the frog. Then he, I mean, once again, Ryan is just opening up the world too much. It's like that opening scene is condensed into one room and it's tight. The fact they kept it going over days and you see Winona Ryder walking through the town in the sunlight and everything doing like that. And I mean, I guess I get what they were going for where she's looking at all the other girls and they're all kind of like, who's talking? Nobody talk, you know. But there was none of that dread that was there. And I think that was the thing there where I said it, this film felt too pedestrian because they brought it out into the community so much in the sunlight and it was just a lot of walking scenes in the village. Like there should have been closer tight ups of, you know, people looking at you funny, you know, the way people look at you, that kind of weird way where it's like, you know, just that wrong look, that shadow on the face, something where it's like you don't know what people are thinking all the time. Like some of the best scenes that where we get to see more stuff is like when we see the villagers turning on each other with like, you know, get your goat out of my garden, go to hell. Well, now she's on trial. She's going to be, you know, call the witch. Or, Mm -hmm. oh my God, my heart breaks for Mr. Jacobs with his canes. Mm -hmm. And uh, Also, like, if you did that to the fire, like, good on you. That's a fun magic trick. You're invited to my parties. Right, exactly. (laughs) But he's like this kind, lispy old man with his canes. And we never get to see Mr. Jacobs in the play. He's one of those offstage characters that we never really hear about. Or we hear about, but we don't see who he is. Was saying you put a name to a face, and he's so kindly and old, and it's like, uh, yeah, Putnam's a dick for going after his land. Like I hate Putnam. They cast a perfect asshole to play him. Where <laughs> it's like one of the great '80s '90s assholes is Ferris Bueller's principal. You know, the, I mean, I mean, I also would have accepted what's his name from Ghostbusters, who's like oh, the, yeah. the the main bad guy there, and also in Die Hard, it's like the reporter. He would have been that other really good choice as Putnam. He needs somebody who's going to be just smarmy and gross. And, you know, that was, and, and that guy did a great job at that. And you feel the the, ener- the energy of that. So, yeah, there are certain montages are like, you know, the hanging montage. So then we don't get to see, and, you know, you see Sarah Good, who's like this kind of wild homeless woman who wants to, and you feel horrible for, because it's like, this is what they would do. Like, this is why they did this shit, was to go after these older women who, you know, like I remember watching a documentary about the witch trials in England. And they talk about this woman who literally they starved her. They sleep deprived her. They ran her up and down a room, you know, stripped her naked. So men could examine her body for reward and pimple on there to try and find it. And you just feel horrible because they cast a really good old actress. You're like watching her go through this as they're explaining the witch trials. And you're like, oh my God, I hate these men for what they're doing, you know? And it's anything like Martha Corey and her, and her, and her courtroom scene where we, because Act 2 opens with the screaming offstage and they all come bursting into the room right away. But the fact we get to see Martha Corey kind of doing the, well, I grew up, well, I raised pigs. I know what's going to happen. And then you got that stupid judge that said, well, you know, how do you know what a witch looks like? And it's like, you asshole, I hate you. You're like freaking Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court who asked those stupid questions where I'm like, I hate him so much. Evil man. And it's like, once again, you get the fact you get to see more of the trial scenes and just how double standarded this whole court proceeding was is really great. But at the same time, 
there are certain things that need to be done from a different perspective to keep that mystery and that energy. Because if you keep it too normal and not too pedestrian, it loses some of that frenzied energy that you need to really keep the play up. You know, Jill? So I'm basically, well, I, I basically what all you all have said is mm-hmm. how I feel as well. But just to kind of like start me off going back to what Sarah's saying, I see why they did these scenes like for film, because I do think they add a texture to sort of set up the cinematic experience, especially to people who aren't familiar with the play. Um, Again, I've said this already tonight too, like having studied the play and ever reading it, like even having done all that, you kind of have to go back and chew on each moment. So like watching the filmed version of it kind of, Yes, like getting almost like too much dramatic irony by them showing we all as the spectators know what's happening throughout the entire piece. But yeah, I think like it does add a filmic texture. I don't think we necessarily need it. It did again add, and this is kind of bleeding into the next question a little bit, but like maybe they were also going for showing these more grotesque scenes of like pressing of Giles and the blood and whatever, like that's sort of maybe the horrific Hollywood-esque elements to sort of plow Mm. through with this. But okay, this is a tiny tangent, but I'm going to loop it in because I really want to get this in the episode. And it's something that we haven't talked about. If this play is staged, I have a really good idea for how A, this could have been done filmically this way and or staged is, I guess I'll talk about it from the stage play, but having Abby present in scene transitions so just weaving that in and having her in the shadows or having her watching Mm -hmm. a scene of all the men talking or having her because kind of what ryan was saying we start it is abigail williams who gets this steamroller going but then we pivot to focal point on john proctor Mm -hmm. but it's abigail williams paris and betty paris who start who are are all at like fault Mm -hmm of digging the lie hole and keeping it going. Like Betty is wide awake. Her eyes are closed, but she is wide awake. Yeah. And she is purposefully doing that. Abby, obviously, the proof is in the pudding and in the text. She's a tyrant throughout the whole thing. And Paris is so like, so it's almost like I, I kind of want, so weird. I have this like graphic image of like the three Paris, Paris like lineage of them there's like someone like doing like a graphic of like Mm -hmm. them with the story behind them because it is they are lying and lying and lying and the three of them you have every type of person as as a three man ship three person ship driving this right like everyone's gonna believe paris because he's the reverend the pious he's he is like one of the oldest men in society Abigail, she's got her lust, her sensuality, her smartness, her like adolescent brain, which we all know, like you're, you are ready to take on the world, even though you have no idea what the world is. And then you have Betty, who is this young, innocent girl, but she knows she can get rid get anything because she has daddy in the palm of her hand. So you have like these, this family. Putnam, who is kind of exploiting this to just get more land for his farm. Yeah, but, yep. but I'm Killing just like, my, my kind of like, I don't know, a directorial approach is like in like, you don't have to change the text, but in the staging of it, what does that family look like outside of the story? Mm-hmm. Like, 
who, you know what I mean? Or like, how, mm-hmm. what are they doing? Like that makes them, because you see these characters manipulate, manipulate and roll along and win situations that you're like, we know they're completely in the wrong. And so like, I don't know, I have this like ominous sort of just in between scene transitions of like, we see how the Parises live their life. And like, it, I don't know, like it could be creepy. It could be what's happening behind their door right and it's just adding like that extra like i guess why this piece why now right like Hmm. you know what is the power of the nuclear family or even again don't even get reverend paris out of this and betty and just have abby like one person like one young female in a room full of men like what is she doing what you know Yeah. And maybe that could have happened in the movie, too. Like if we saw more just scenes of Abigail doing everyday life or her looking at people or her, you know, other than staying, I guess that's that maybe that's also because Arthur Miller wrote the screenplay. Mm -hmm. Right. There's maybe not necessarily as a different eye on the Mm -hmm. piece to maybe Mm -hmm. shake some of that out in cinema. Mm -hmm. Obviously, like the director could have a little bit of but I don't really know what their relationship was right if arthur miller kind of wanted it to be as true to the screenplay text as possible anyways that's a tangent but i was like mm-hmm. i, feel I like gotta get that in there elegantly gets us into our final question yes. yeah Which, before we go fun fact about arthur miller in this piece is his daughter rebecca miller was on set and that is how daniel day lewis and, and um, rebecca miller met and they married only like a year later and they've been married ever since so clearly huh. Rebecca Miller had no problem with the no bathing thing because they hooked up. She and thought he was so bathing. dreamy. <laughs> yeah. But either way, they've hey. been together now ever since and she's been you know what? put up Tweets with all the... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, she's the same. I mean, putting up with some of the character work she he goes through and she's always been by his side. So, you know. That's he love. Finds the... Yep, he, they find love in, in, in weird witchy places. So there you go. <laughs> all right, so let's get into the last question, though. Which is one that is quite interesting, which is this film received several Academy Award nominations, including Best Adapted Screenplay for Miller and Best Supporting Actress for Joan Allen as Elizabeth Proctor. However, despite the accolades, it failed to do well at the box office. Why do you think this film did resonate well with audiences? Has this play become dated and or not as relevant as it once was? And I would like to start this question because I've done some box office deep diving of November 1996 when this film came out. So, I'll start first by just giving my overall impressions of, is this fil- is this play dated? Like, like has it lost its relevancy? No. Like, we are still living in this world of, you know, witch hunt, like, what's Trump's go-to line these days? It's a witch hunt, you know? Like, we still live in this McCarthy-era world of divided partisanship, pointing fingers, holding hearings so people can yell at each other and smear each other's names. I mean, like, I mean, we just heard about how, what's her name, Marjorie Taylor Greene just went down to Mar-a-Lago to have fish and chips with Donald Trump, and they were over talking about how she's going to lead the impeachment on Joe Biden and make it as long and painful as possible, not for any good, like, moral reason, but just to screw with them and smear his name before politics. Have Like, Kevin McCarthy said like when what's her name clinton hillary clinton ran in 2015 the only reason why he started the the, uh, benghazi hearings was not to like you know get justice for anybody it was to smear her name and drag down her poll numbers he said this on the news and admitted it fully like that's what like you know politics does he says that's what mccarthy was doing 
He wasn't doing this for some virtuous purpose. He was grandstanding so he could ultimately run for the for like the Republican nomination. Ron DeSantis does the same thing. The war on woke, you know, got people seeing, you know, liberals in their soup. We got to, you know, we got to ban the books. We got to, you know, strip the schools of everything that like is different. So, you know, we still live in this heightened society world where, you know, we can easily start pointing fingers and, you know, you know, you know, like, like what's Trump say? Trump derangement syndrome. That's what he calls people who like keep going after him. He's like, you got Trump derangement syndrome. And it's like, so we still have people today doing this type of thing. And then, you know, then the story gets spun versus, you know, actually focusing on the facts, which is, you know, he stole documents and hid them in his washroom in Mar-a-Lago. You know, now it's a witch hunt where people went in and planted documents, you know. So now it's just being spun. And of course, he gets the judge that he appointed and she's unqualified for the job, which she is. But that's like, you know, everything gets spun these days and the hysteria builds. So, you know, it happens. I mean, people say about COVID, you know, COVID was fake. It was all meant to keep us indoors. It's a witch hunt. So, you know, that the story that, Mac- that, that Arthur Miller told, it keeps showing up because people keep falling for hysteria. Hitler did it with the Jewish people, the Romani, the, like, the, like the others of Germany, where he's like, guess what? We got problems. Great. We're going to go after these people who are different from us and drum up. A, a situation and be really scary. Abigail Williams wants to hide, like hide the fact she was out in the woods doing some innocent stuff with Tichuba, but she's going to cover her by digging a lie hole and just keep piling the shit into it and, you know, go after Elizabeth Proctor because she smeared my name, even though, you know, Elizabeth was right. She was less, na- like, Abby's less than after John there. So anyway, why this film fell flat, though? So, this film fell flat because it wasn't excellent it was as we said it was good it was okay but it wasn't gripping movie theater must see film like filmmaking it was one of those ones you can rent at the video store on a friday night it also came out in november so it missed the halloween maybe like this episode might be but we'll see (laughs) yes yes so 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 it missed its main window it wasn't like gripping like i mean i mean mean, you go watch the trailers and the trailers are dry they don't catch the hysteria that this place supposed to evoke you know and also it was going up against a really big month in november where you had romeo plus juliet starring leonardo DiCaprio coming out the beginning of the month you have space jam coming out the following week along with the english patient and that summer in july along came independence day and that film was still reigning number one at the box office in November. Welcome so, to Earth. So it was against some heavy competitions of films that were, you know, bigger must-see on the big screen films. Like Romeo and Juliet was big. That was a big blockbuster hit for Baz Luhrmann and DiCaprio and Claire Danes. People wanted to go out in theaters and see that on the big screen. Space Jam, everybody loved Michael Jordan. He was in his heyday. Of course, you're going to take the kids out to see a Bugs Bunny, Michael Jordan mashup. I don't think then anyone it, was taking their kids to see The Crucible or Space Jam. <laughs> it's hard to pick. <laughs> but once again, counter-programming, then you got English Patient, which is this yeah. indie, artsy, romance, bathtub film, uh, you know, where it's sexy, right? You got Ray Fiennes in the bathtub. Uh, that's the one thing everybody remembers from that film. Besides, you know, uh, um, Elaine and Seinfeld going, I hate English Patient. <laughs> and then ends up getting sent to the Middle East. Which is great. It's a great episode. But she hates the English patient. Has to sit through it like three times. Just die already. But people had a lot of other choices to go with. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. the Crucible was one where it's like English patient, Space Jam, Romeo and Juliet, Independence Day, or The Crucible. 
which is not marketing well because it's a dry trailer. Yeah, I can see why it didn't do well at the box office, even though also in the 90s, we were in peacetime. As we talked about in A Few Good Men, we weren't in that era of accusations that we were just getting into the Monica Lewinsky scandal, which was right after in the midterms in 95. So we were just inching our way in. We had just had the, oh, what's his name? The lawyer that killed himself. Uh, and the Clintons got blamed for Ken Starr, I think it's, no, 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 Ken Starr, special prosecutor. Anyway, I forget the lawyer anyway, but he was like part of DOJ and he walked into the, to, in, in, uh, like into Washington mm-hmm. Woods and shot himself and like everybody thought Clintons did a hit job on him because the Republicans stirred that hysteria up once again. And then of course, then they appoint Ken Starr as a, as a special counsel and you get Monica Lewinsky scandal land. But like we were just at the beginning of that divisive hysteria that was going to come with the, with like the Lewinsky scandal, we weren't there yet, and because of that's why I think this one just wasn't at the right time. It came out like two years later. Maybe it would have done better. So there we go, mm-hmm. Ryan. Yeah. Sorry, or Jill. Jill I, 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 uh, I, I have a lot of thoughts, but I, if you want to go next, you can go next. Um, well, base because basically, I just want to kind of jump off of kind of what I was saying and jumping off of what Mac was saying too of how it is relevant in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But I think. It's kind of going back to, I'm using, I'm going to use a scene from the actual movie. Like it's when, okay, sorry. Let's say what I'm going to say first. The, the idea that like the woman, a woman's voice basically Mm -hmm. is also a theme that can be unpacked in this piece. And again, it's unfortunately kind of backburnered when we segue to the, through the lens of John Proctor, but like looking back in the time, like historically of this, like women were the most subservient, like zero agency, zero, like you were born into, this is your place. This is what you are. This is who you are. So to have like an entire company of young women have some sort of power in the palm of their hands, has some sort of agency and digging at what is the micro morsel that's given to them and then how in this piece it explodes to this like societal scandal that's really cool for like like there's like something you can unpack or play upon of yeah like what these women did with this power it's not Mm -hmm. necessarily right but like who's you know like they didn't have anything else to do it kind of just goes back to like how i feel for abby in this too of like she has no idea what love is or what lust is the probably john proctor is the only or like one of the first men of his age of his stature that she's been around and maybe she's not even that attracted to him at first but she like ties herself to him because that's all they know that's all they've been they've been like told that's what their life does so like i feel like there's so many things that you can kind of like sift out with that like and i'm even thinking of there's a scene in the movie where it's when john proctor like they're standing in front of danforth and she finally says like she's a whore she's a blah 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 blah." i wanted winona Ryder to like look up at him and just laugh like laugh in his face and be like really like you're that's all you're caring about. Like there's so many deep seated issues that this piece is getting at. And a lot of the men in this stay very surface level and stay to tradition and stay to, we're going to blame her and blame her. Or there's just like, there's so many things that I think 
yeah and through like a, a sort of contemporary court setting like there's a lot of like like almost like satire that can be sifted out in this piece or like in like a crucible adaptation or like something that is isn't like there crucible, another but play that's like takes john proctor to task yeah ryan John Proctor is the villain by Kimberly Bellflower. That's There's also, oh, I don't know. Also, I don't know that one. Yeah, it hasn't been published yet, so you can't like find the script anywhere to read. It premiered a few years ago. It's also it's not like a direct adaptation of The Crucible. It's it's set in like a, I believe a high school. I haven't read it again. You can't find a PDF of it anywhere, and it hasn't been performed here in Canada. But yeah, it's like set in a high school, and like studying The Crucible reflects the students' lives. It, it's going to be big, and you know it's already wow. starting to ripple out. There's also there you go. Uh, I could even add to this, there's a play called Abigail by Sarah Tufts that kind of filters it through Abigail's perspective. There's Becky Nurse of Salem about Rebecca Nurse by Sarah Rule. Amazing. Um, Love Rebecca Nurse. (laughs) Underrated care. If if you want. (laughs) There's actually, I looked this up earlier today because I read this a little while ago. There's this really good master's thesis from, I think, Illinois State University from, I wrote it down here, it is 2021 by Hope Morris. The title of it is Bewitching the Blame, the Crucible's Legacy of Appropriation and Sexual Shame in Popular Culture. Hope Morris, grad student from Illinois, if you're watching this, you know, filtering the Crucible and contemporary adaptations through a feminist lens because this play very much, despite the fact that the Salem Witch Trials disproportionately had women as its victims, very much the play filters it through a masculine lens, i.e., yeah. well, what will John Proctor do with his good name? Yeah. So, it's been a what lot is of my name? Yeah. yeah, contemporary and playwrights makes... and scholars are redressing this. Good, makes yes. All the women, the perpetrators and the villains, well, despite. And that's <laughs> that they... what. Yeah. So, Sarah, I'm glad you kind of brought that up too, because, like, I hear what both Jill and Mac are saying, and I agree with a lot of it too, but. To me, something about this play, the 90s is a different story that we could get back to in a second, but doing this play right now, to me, feels a little tone deaf. Like, doing the play as is, there's all these very interesting adaptations, but because the very clear analogy, historically, in this moment that we might compare it to is cancel culture. It's very much in the air as part of the discussion, and Me Too in particular, and... I look at this play with all of these young women pointing their fingers at innocent people, a lot of them men, and I see this as something that isn't necessarily meant to be this, but could easily be construed as a parable about not believing female accusers because they're just whipping up a big hysteria. And like, you know, Mac, you mentioned Brett Kavanaugh earlier. And, you know, if we want to talk about the 90s, this movie came out a few years after the Anita Hill hearings against Clarence Mm -hmm. Thomas. And, you know, it doesn't look great when you look at it through that lens. And I, I don't know, I feel like doing this play just as is a straightforward version, really just today rubs me the wrong way. We're dealing with a very different political climate, a different social climate, a different legal jurisprudence climate. And the fact that we have social media as these platforms where people can make accusations and we do see things that we might compare to witch hunts. But Mac, to go back to what you were saying about how Trump calls any accusation against himself a witch hunt, I'm kind of over this overuse of witch hunt rhetoric because everybody sees themselves as the victim, the John Proctor, the Elizabeth Proctor. And it's it's a very easy shorthand for everyone to be like, if you're accusing me, it's kind of just like the crucible. 
which is kind of just like the HUAC <laughs> hearings. It really makes you think. And it, it's a very easy deflection that, you know, if you look at this play, oh, yeah, people making a big stink about guilty actions of people in their town are full of it. And we should resist that kind of hysteria. But you know what? Sometimes those accusations are warranted. We've seen it with Harvey Weinstein. We've seen it with Bill Cosby, just to name a few kind of very high profile examples. We should have seen it against Brett Kavanaugh. We also saw how that went out. But yeah, it's very easy to just say, ah, this is a witch hunt. I am being accused. And we all look at someone like Trump and be like, well, obviously he's full of it. But you know who doesn't think that? All of his base, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this play now at least in its own state. Although, to end my spiel on a positive <laughs> note, maybe not the word I want to use here, but <laughs> I think there is a, a way that you can do this play as is and have it still be relevant. And it's actually surprisingly simple, and I'm sure many productions have done this. I've never seen it, but I'm sure it's been done. Make the Proctors black. And it's that simple. Because... Wait, if we're looking at today's legal climate, if, you know, if they're a racial minority in this town, and I know it flaunts the historical accuracy, but who gives a shit about any There's of that? There's a lot of historical accuracy in this play. <laughs> well, and I, got, I feel like this is more a pitch for a stage production than it is for mm-hmm. a movie. Uh, God, if people lost their minds about a mermaid being black. Imagine if a historical person like John Proctor, but... But oh I guess <laughs> but, we're going political but, on this people. But, Check out our but, comments on this one. <laughs> but but if we look at the people today who are not having their lives and rights being taken seriously by the rule of law, who are not believed when they try to point out how that rule of law is against them, I don't think I want to see another white John Proctor. End rant. Boom. Okay. Yeah. Boom. Sarah, take a second. Sarah. Well, I loved everything that everybody said. And it's funny because you all sort of described the like journey that I went on thinking about this question. My initial response was exactly what Mac, you had started with was that yes, it's still relevant. We're dealing with the idea of, you know, it's kind of to me, it's if it's a historical event, there's always maybe legitimacy and Mm -hmm. a in continuing to look at a historical event and what can we learn from this or but then also pulling the themes right like the mm-hmm. folly of the human folly human selfishness evil fear-mongering fake news right like there's a lot of themes here that i think are relevant mm-hmm. today so my initial reaction was like yes a, a story with this kind of themes that are about people and the bad things we do to each other i think that is always relevant the reason that i initially was was thinking that maybe that it was not very popular at the time was i think a few things that i already mentioned like i think if we're supposed to be seeing ourselves in john proctor and relating to john proctor and seeing him as kind of the hero the the bad performance was a problem like not Mm -hmm. being able to connect with him because he was not connected to anyone around him (laughs) like that's a big roadblock i think it's already a period of peace as i mentioned before i think some actors did better than others with taking the language and making it sound human and real the accents were also there (laughs) 
they were interesting. I'm sure maybe accurate, but a little distancing, right? Like they're a little off. So if the actors cannot make the language and the accents feel real and human, that's another distancing factor that makes this feel like a stodgy dated period piece instead of something relevant. Even if the themes should be relevant, mm -hmm. these performance elements might make it feel kind of stodgy and not relevant to an audience. You know, uh, so there's things like that in the, that I think in the film itself were maybe a hindrance to people connecting with it, like maybe they mm -hmm. could have. Um, but I started to feel, so these were my like initial thoughts. And I still believe these things, like it's still a play that I love. And I, I if someone put it on now, I wouldn't be annoyed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I think I still feel like there's a lot relevant in the themes of the piece. But I have to say, it took me like a couple days later, I started to get that feeling of like, you know, it's funny that a man wrote this play about this a time in history when people used witch hunts to target women who were not behaving and put them down, but make all the villains the women. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that, the, of course, there's villains in the male characters as well with the judge and whatever. But all of the, the, the instigators, like the evil is coming from the women. And mm -hmm. it sort of is perpetuating this exact idea that like women are evil, seductress temptresses who lead men astray and they lie with their accusations and they don't tell, you know. And it took me like a couple of days. And this is not something that struck me the first time I saw the play. So this is something that like this time started to go, you know, that doesn't really feel right because this is, I think it started, the thing that should be relevant is the feminist message that comes out of the witch trials, which is that like, this is how we treat women who don't do behave the way we want them to behave. And it's, and that still happens in other ways today, right? But unfortunately, this story doesn't tell that this story actually villainizes the women, which seems sort of backwards. Mm -hmm. So I do think that like there, as a, there was been a few ideas here about like how you might do a modern adaptation of this with some new ideas to highlight different mm -hmm. aspects of the story. And I think it could be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just, that was, so I kind of, I, I know I've just said to kind of two contrasting things, but I sort of had two, different feelings i had the initial feeling of like yeah this is irrelevant i think we didn't connect to it because of these these accents and then i had this other moment of like you know maybe i didn't connect to it because i didn't really like what it was saying <laughs> so yeah it's a tough play like once again it's a mixed bag play it keeps getting revived like they just did a revival on broadway with Cersei ronan where they said it in an all-girls boarding school which was oh. a really neat thing because once it gets back to that high school it bullying. Ooh, Sarah just changed angles. Sorry, my ah. camera, something happened. Oh, yeah. I, witch crap. <laughs> it's a witch. <laughs> As the other female in the room, you are not a witch. You are a wonderful <laughs> woman. She dies. Burn her too. <laughs> and I laugh at you, sir. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. but yeah, no, they keep reimagining this piece with like different ways to interpret the characters, which. Ron, I'd be interested to see your casting of the Proctors to see what that angle would bring to the story. Uh, and then I really do want to read these other plays that, that have been mm -hmm. inspired by The Crucible. Like, like you know, this, the, like, uh, the play about Rebecca Nurse. It's like, 
a side character that nobody really cares about. And yet she's got like a whole play that's from her point of view, which is fascinating. And if you read up historically, it was her and her sisters who were all accused and I believe hung. So, you know, very interesting, yeah. very interesting play. Arthur Miller gave us some good juicy material to keep chewing on over time. But and I was analyze before, and discuss. Analyze, discuss. Like I love yeah. the fact that Jill, you read that in high school. I think high school is the perfect place to study a play like this because of the different themes you can get into between like, you know, group mentality and bullying, which we all experience in high school with the cliques, you know, to like, you know, women's voices in society. And that opens a whole can of worms there. So perfect place to study is high school and get into kind of the muck and mire of, of that world. So very interesting. But what do we say we sign off for the night? You know, yeah. see some little witch hangings off camera there. Uh, <laughs> You know, but before we go, Sarah, where can people find and follow you? Okay. You can find me on Instagram. I'm at heim.sarah. That's the best place to find me. And please, I'm going to plug a little thing here. Please check out Pink is In. It's a TV series here in Canada on Bell 5 TV. You can see all three seasons. You can also now watch it in the States on Tubi for free if you make an account, but you can also rent it on Amazon Prime. In the U.S. and the U.K., and you can watch it on Tubi in Mexico. Woo! Yeah, international acclaim. Yes, exactly. So, yes, please check it out. Perfect. You, Jill. Like, where can people find and follow you? Yes, you can follow my artist Instagram account at Jillian.Robinson96. I'll be posting the usual like covers of stuff, and I believe at time of release of this episode. I will be up in the Muskoka doing some spooky theater contract of my own. I am teaming up again with the wonderful Autumn Smith with Timber Beast Productions up there. We are doing a series of micro musicals written by Autumn and her brother-in-law, Justin Hiscox. It's called Souls of the Shield. And they're little micro musicals about real life situations or folklore or legends of the way people have perished up in the up in Gravenhurst, Bracebridge and Huntsville supported by the Ontario Arts Council. So that's super rad. I, at time of recording, don't know the ins and outs of everything yet. And if I will be singing opera or playing a spooky ghost, but I hope to be doing everything. So yeah, that's my little plug there. Very good. Ryan Barakovich, where can people find and follow you and give you their thoughts on Paul Schofield as Judge Dan <laughs> If you have thoughts about Paul Scofield, you can put them in the comments of this episode <laughs> and I will see them, I guess. <laughs> I check the comments sometimes. <laughs> but no, if you like me, you could just follow Cup of Hemlock. We're at COH Theater on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm not going to call it X anymore. It's stupid. We've all made this joke. It's fun, whatever. <laughs> but. Yes, our Cup of Hemlock Theater, like, share, subscribe. All of my theater thoughts tend to live here, so no need to follow me personally unless you want to. I'm not hard to find. Very nice. good. All right. And you can find, follow me at Mackenzie Horner, all social media platforms. You can follow my musical antics over at Before the Downbeat, a musical podcast. Ron and I did a mini series on there discussing the TV series Gallivant, which may be coming out around this time as like a mid-season break. So, you know, check that on out wow. there. We get into we our filmed musical that so roots. long ago. It's finally <laughs> happening. It's finally <laughs> happening, Ryan. Wow. And, and I mean, if you have a show you'd like us to come talk about, send us an email. Link and contact is below. If there's a particular film adaptation of a play you want us to talk about, put that in the comments. We're happily take a look at it and see what we can do to 
whip up a, a conversation about it because about it, there's lots of great adaptations of plays onto the screen to choose from. So Maybe at some point we'll do a man for all seasons and really Ooh. get into the Paul Schofield of it all. <laughs> that could be fun. That could be fun. There we go. All right, everybody. And until next time, thank you so much. And remember, don't believe the hysteria. Look for the facts. Not always the witch hunt. All right. But also believe the victims. Yes. Yes.